Welcome to A Long Way From Home, a podcast of the Ali Fernay Center, which examines how we LGBTQ people experience exile and rejection and explores how we find home and create community. I'm your host, Carl Siciliano, and I thank you for joining us. In recent decades, as LGBTQ people fought to achieve equality and liberation, our opponents have often used religion to keep us down. Globally, our most influential opponents have undoubtedly been found in the Roman Catholic Church, which has consistently opposed our civil rights, has vilified us, and has done much to fan the flames of hatred against us. But recently, there are signs of change. For decades, groups like Dignity and New Ways Ministry have stood up for LGBTQ people in the Roman Catholic Church. Their efforts have begun to bear fruit in a growing number of parishes and Catholic institutions that seek to welcome us with affirmation and respect. Five years ago, following the Pulse Massacre, they gained a tremendously influential champion in Father James Martin. Having authored books on Jesus and the saints that sold hundreds of thousands of copies, having made numerous appearances in the media, most notably on the Stephen Colbert show, where he was designated its honorary chaplain, and with his enormous following in social media, Father Martin is probably the most famous Catholic priest in the United States. In 2017, he released Building a Bridge, a book in which he calls upon the Catholic Church to listen to LGBTQ people and treat us with compassion and respect. Since then, he has been on a mission to help heal the Catholic Church of its homophobia and transphobia, giving many hundreds of speeches in parishes and Catholic schools across the country and around the world. Not surprisingly, his efforts have made him a lightning rod for some Catholics fiercely attached to their bigotries. Many of his speeches have been met with protests, and he's faced a torrent of abuse and even death threats. But what has profoundly surprised me has been the acceptance his efforts have found with some bishops, cardinals, and even Pope Francis, who has blessed Father Martin's work. I want to note Father Martin and I share a Roman Catholic identity. I don't want our discussion to be interpreted as the promotion of any particular belief system, but rather as an examination of an effort to bring urgently needed healing to a spiritual environment. Father Jim, welcome to the A Long Way From Home podcast. We're so honored and delighted to have you with us. It's my pleasure. I've listened in preparation for this to a number of the speeches you've given over the last few years. And I want to give our listeners a sense of the journey that it took for you to start taking the strong stand of support that you've taken for the LGBTQ community. I wonder if you could tell us about your experience in college and wearing jeans. Yeah, so I went to the University of Pennsylvania, and I was there from 1978 to 1982. And uh, I remember there was a there was a, a there was a gay group on campus called Gays at Penn. I can't believe I remember that. And uh, I remember maybe in October, I'm not sure when it was, but in the fall sometime they had Gay Jeans Day, J E A N S, where they advertised that everyone who supported the gay community should wear jeans. Now I wore jeans pretty much every day of my college life, you know, except in the summertime when I wore shorts, I think. And that was the one day that I was sure not to wear jeans. 
because I was just so, not, not that I was homophobic, but I just didn't want to be identified with that community in any way. Uh, you know, so that was me back in college. And now, you know, whatever, 30, 40 years later, things have changed a bit. A bit. Could you talk about why you felt so afraid? Well, I think that uh, it's the same reason I think that a lot of people feel homophobia today, um, you know, is that so again, I grew up in the 60s and 70s. And so there was this fear of being associated with that group or being seen as a sissy or I don't know if I'm even allowed to say these words anymore. Fairy. I know you don't say the F word anymore, the F blank G word. Uh, but, you know, those are some of the worst things that a, that a boy and a young man could have been called. And so I wanted to, you know, kind of remove myself from that. But again, I mean, I, I think that was probably the way that many kids in my generation were raised. You know, the last thing you wanted to do was be gay. Uh, and it, I'll tell you something. I gave a talk at um, Regis High School, which is a Jesuit high school in New York City, to some, uh, um, you know, high school kids. It's, it's all boys high school. And some of them were saying, you know, how things haven't changed. And I said to them a word I, I used advisedly. I said, in my generation, growing up and outside of Philadelphia, it would have been unthinkable. I really mean that unthinkable for any boy or young man to identify himself as gay or homosexual, unthinkable. And so, you know, we've come a long way just in my lifetime. I don't know what your own personal evolution was, but, you know, looking at you from the outside, it seems like something radically shifted in 2016, in terms of your willingness to make supporting the LGBTQ community one of the central focuses of your life. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I, I think, Carl, that, um, you know, that, that there was always an, an, an interest in me to advocate for this group of people. Um, you know, most of my Jesuit training, as we say, formation, was really with people who were on the margins, right? Who felt on the margins, who are on the margins. I worked with, uh, I won't go through my whole training, but I worked with homeless people, street gangs, um, people in hospitals. I worked with uh, refugees in East Africa for two years. I worked with inmates. And so I, I you know, we're, we are called as Jesuits to, as some of our language says now, walk with the excluded. And so I always stuck up for LGBTQ people and even wrote about them in America Magazine and, and whatnot. But you're right, I never really taken kind of this sort of public stand. And it was the Pulse nightclub massacre that really was a conversion experience for me. And uh, it was it was essentially seeing how little uh, the US bishops or any Catholic leaders said in the wake of that terrible tragedy and how the, the, the phrase that kept coming to my mind was um, after Pulse was even in death, these people are invisible to the to the Catholic Church. And so I thought that that needed to be uh, looked at and rectified. And that, you're right. And that, that did kind of change my, I would say, my, my willingness to be you know, more public and more upfront about it. But again, I just say, you know, with all uh, you know, gratitude, the Jesuits were behind me every step of the way. Everything, everything I did, I'm going to be giving a talk about this. I'm going to be writing a book about this. I'm, yes, yes, yes. You know, they were very, they were very supportive of me as as is the superior general of the Society of Jesus, and as people know now, thanks to this letter I was able to release, as is the Pope. And so, so that's been a real blessing in my life. But of course, again, that comes with limits. I'd like to talk a little bit about how 
in the years since 2016, when you uh, responded to the Pulse massacre and social media, and then you went and gave a speech at New Ways Ministry, and then you released your book, uh, Building a Bridge. Uh, how people have responded to you in the church. <laughs> yeah. and, and actually, first, I'd like to talk about the positive responses. Sure. Yeah, and, I mean, and I have to say for myself, I went to see you, I, I think one of your early speeches after you released the book at St. Francis Xavier. And um, there were hundreds and hundreds of people, people were crying. You know, I wanted to introduce myself to you after, but the line was so long. I was like, God, I'm going to be standing here for three hours. So I got a sense that there was a reception of, of great joy and happiness that a priest as prominent as yourself, as well known as yourself, and as, as kind of centered in the kind of the American Catholic identity uh, was taking the stand that you were taking and speaking in the way you're speaking. So, so first, I'd love to hear about some of the really positive responses that you've gotten. Well, you know, just that, just what you were saying, Carl, and it was stunning to me because, you know, the book is, is pretty modest. And, uh, you know, the, the first edition and the second edition, for that matter, it doesn't challenge any church teaching. It essentially talks about treating LGBT people with respect, compassion and sensitivity. And so the, the positive response at the beginning at places like St. Francis Xavier, other places that I remember, uh, St. Cecilia's in Boston, Holy Trinity in Washington, um, St. Ignatius in New York, you know, a lot of these Catholic parishes that I have to say are very progressive, you know, in a sense have probably heard or thought these things already, but the response was extraordinary. And I think you're right. I think part of it is seeing a priest say this publicly and I think the conversation just needed to be opened up in a new way, but it stunned me. And, and I had that in the first few months, maybe the first year, you know, people crying, people waiting in line, standing ovations. Uh, one of the stories I like to tell is that St. Cecilia's in Back Bay in Boston, very progressive, very LGBTQ friendly. I had been there six months before, right? I mean, six months before talking about Jesus, a book on Jesus that I did. And so, you know, I thought, well, the people aren't going to come to this. I've been here six months before. They know this at St. Cecilia's, you know, like they know it at Xavier. The book's very modest. We had 700 people, two hours waiting to see me, hugs, kisses, crying. And so, yeah, so the positive response and then individual responses, people writing me letters saying thank you and um, LGBT people, also their parents too, parents and grandparents. Thank you. You know, now I can... You know, now I can point to something uh, sort of tangible for my grandchild or my child in the church. Um, and then, of course, part two was the negative response. You know, if, before we go to the negative response, <laughs> sure. I, I'd actually like to talk about how your message and your ministry has been received by bishops and even by the Pope. Well, it depends on the bishop. Uh, certainly the Pope has been very supportive. Um, I won't go through all of the, our interactions, but uh, I think the main one was uh, a year ago. Um, I met with him for half an hour in his apostolic uh, palace and in the library where he meets diplomats and spoke to him for a half an hour about LGBT ministry and the Vatican released a picture of us. I mean, it, it, these are the Vatican's ways of kind of communicating these things. I was on his official schedule I was in the Apostolic Palace, you know, the same place where he meets presidents and whatnot. They put out a picture. And um, yeah, and he, I can say this now because now it's public. And he said, I would like you to continue this ministry in peace. So, you know, from the highest levels, 
and other uh, cardinals and bishops who have been extremely supportive, um, not only in the United States, uh, you know, the, the new cardinal in um, Bologna, Cardinal Matteo Zuppi, wrote the uh, introduction to the Italian language edition of Building a Bridge. So, you know, you know, all over the world. At the same time, you know, uh, cardinals and bishops who really don't agree with it and who have uh, been very vocal in their opposition. And, you know, Cardinal Sarah, for example, wrote a whole op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about my book. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it, look, this is, this is kind of the, this is kind of the boundaries for the church right now. And, and certainly we have to understand, I would imagine most people who are listening to this are listening, you know, it's in English in the West, but these issues, you know, are quite different, as you know, in Eastern Europe and in Sub-Saharan Africa and in Latin America. And so it, that de it depends on where the bishops are from too, you know, what their culture is like. So I always say things that seem really tepid and lukewarm in the United States are white hot elsewhere. So now I'd like to talk about some of the negative responses, <laughs> um, which I have, I think, like a fraction of a personal experience of um, compared well, I to what so. I hope it's just a fraction compared to what has been directed at you. Um, I actually want to share a, a, a personal story um, to lead into that. I'm a Catholic boy, a nice Italian Catholic boy. Uh, I was a monk. I was involved with the Catholic worker movement for a number of years. Um, I came out of the closet in 1987, uh, which was sort of like right when the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church was beginning to articulate its response to the, the LGBTQ rights movement. And it was not a very kind response in those days. Uh, the, the words that are emblazoned in my mind is intrinsically inclined to evil. Um, and I've always carried a lot of pain about that. And because of my work with the Ali Fernay Center, uh, and because so many uh, of the young people that come to us are thrown out of their families for, for religious reasons, I think that a, a number of open-hearted churches have, have wanted to support our young people uh, and have reached out to me to have, you know, support our young people. And something that was quite striking to me was about seven or eight years ago, I started being invited to speak at different church communities gay pride celebrations. Uh, they were all Protestant churches. Um, and then about four years ago, I was invited to speak at a Catholic church's gay pride celebration, their, their very first one. Um, and I was moved beyond, it's hard to, you'd have to have lived through what I've lived through to understand how moved I was by that, to, to have gotten that invitation. Um, and what a sign for me it was of things changing. And then a group called uh, the Church Militant realized that I was going to be doing this speech along with Lady Gaga's mother. Uh, we, the two of us were, in, were invited to speak at this, this Roman Catholic parish's first ever pride celebration. And they went ballistic mm -hmm. and started petitions and started deluging Cardinal Dolan's office with calls about what an evil person I was. And when I got there that night, they were outside praying the rosary in protest of my being there. Uh, and you know, look, I, if, if I can provoke people to pray the rosary, I, I can think of worse things than that. But um, 
the, the folks from the parish met me at the door and said that Cardinal Dolan had called and said I wasn't allowed to give the speech. Oh. Um, and I was so hurt. Like, I remember I was driving home that night and I was crying. Um, and I was surprised. I was surprised that it could hurt me that bad. Um, so anyway, that, that, that's just my personal experience of like, you know, trying to speak about acceptance of LGBTQ people in Catholic environments and, and it being treated like a terrible, terrible problem so I, I but as i say i think that what i've gone through is just a, the, the smallest fraction of, of what you've gone through no and but I'm that's pretty I, talk a little bit about some of the resistance to your work yeah but then experience like that is 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 very painful that's a very painful experience and i i've shared in some of those experiences um when my book came out uh, building a bridge i was attacked uh, personally not not just the book not just i disagree with what he's saying but He's a heretic. He's an apostate. He's a sodomite. He's a homosexualist. He's, I mean, every possible name, a false priest, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Uh, talks were canceled, protests. Um, you know, as I said, people were writing articles about me. One bishop who will remain nameless in the United States devoted his entire uh, column for his weekly uh, diocesan newspaper about my book. And then halfway through the column admitted that he hadn't read the book. Uh, and so, yeah, it was, it was pretty painful, uh, but I, I actually grew to the point where I, it didn't bother me. And I'm not saying it shouldn't bother people, but I realized that uh, this, this goes with the territory. I had a very powerful experience on a retreat a few years before where I realized that Jesus went through the same thing. I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, but he's our model and he's our example. And I remember realizing that Jesus didn't have to be liked or loved or approved of. And so once that happened, I was pretty free, but it was, it, it's really hateful stuff. And we just have to be clear. This is, this is really hateful and homophobic stuff. I mean, there's one thing to kind of disagree with a person's argument and, and maybe have a legitimate critique and question things. And, you know, you might even say, well, let's talk about same sex marriage. And, you know, I don't agree with that and blah, blah, blah. But to, to attack the person, you know, the ad hominem. It's crazy. And look, most of the people that are doing this, like Church Militant, and this is not telling tales out of school, this, this is a person who has said he is, you know, he's gay and, and he has repented. And so a lot of these people are either ex-gays, as they say, uh, or they are really struggling with something interiorly. That's where that rage comes from, I think. I think it's something that's going on inside of them. And so I, I just had to make peace, peace with it and say, look, this, this goes with the territory. And I, I deal with it in certain ways. One way is I just kind of ignore it. So for example, these days, a lot of it's online. I just, I just ignore it. And I have had people, they continue to protest me and I just, I ignore it. You know, it's Dionne Warwick said, I walk on by. In thinking about what you've gone through though, in the last few years, I mean, A, I applaud your ability to ignore it. Uh, B, I've, I've, you know, read a number of comments that folks have made about you on, on, on some of these sites. Uh, you know, I've seen the most kind of hateful language one could imagine. I've seen death threats. Oh, yeah, I've got death threats. And, oh, it's really hateful stuff. I mean, you're, because I think what happens is, and I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I was going to say that, you know, what happens is that people in this situation think that they're not only right, but they have God on their side. And so therefore they're prophetic. And they're they're critiquing evil. They think I'm evil, and so I should be. I need to be eradicated and eliminated. And you know, most of these people don't 
I haven't even read my book or they don't come to my talks. They don't listen to what I say. It's all about memes online and eventually just get past that and say, I don't, I don't really care. And, you know, when I have uh, Pope Francis coming out and saying, you know, I approve of your work and I want you to continue it, then why do I care about what church militant says? It, it doesn't bother me. I don't wish them ill and I, I don't want to attack them. And I really try to be uh, charitable to them as much as I can, but I don't, I don't let them stop the ministry. I, uh, you know, I, my, my obedience as a Jesuit is to the Pope, not to church militant. One thing that, that I, I, I've thought about is that the extent of the rage that's directed at you is perhaps proportionate to the effectiveness of your message. Or it's proportionate. And, and, of, uh, and of rage at you as an effective messenger. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I, I, I hope so. It'd be nice if the ministry was effective. Uh, um, but I think it's also, it's an interesting question, Carl. I think it's also proportionate to the discomfort that they feel interiorly. I've spoken to a lot of psychologists about this, and I was at a talk in Westport, Connecticut, which for some listeners who might not know, it's a fairly affluent part of Connecticut. It's fairly conservative. And I was at a very a nice, progressive, welcoming parish, and I gave this talk early on. And a woman came up to me at the book signing line in front of everyone, dressed very nicely. I would call her a Connecticut matron, right? Or, uh, you know, there's all sorts of stereotypes of that I don't want to get into. Uh, but she started screaming at me. And I mean screaming. I don't want to do this on my microphone, but actually screaming, screaming at the top of her lungs. You're going to hell. You disgust me. So the next day I talked to a friend of mine who's a therapist. And I said, where does that come from? Because I, it was really the first time I'd experienced something like that in person. And it was so brilliant. She said, her comes from her. So there's something going on inside of her. Either she's a lesbian or she's struggling with sexual feelings or she has someone in her family that's LGBT or, but it's her, it's something that's unresolved because most people can disagree with someone and, uh, you know, again, just, you know, disagree. And that's interesting, but that, that sort of, sort of almost, you know, incendiary rage is in proportion to, you know, her, her sort of feelings. I also think that, um, you know, I, I stand in as a proxy for Pope Francis. Uh, and so people who could not say these things about Pope Francis, even though they do, much easier to say it about Jim Martin, because, you know, who cares about Jim Martin? You know, you're not, you're not seen as disobedient. So if you don't like Pope Francis and what he's doing, you can take it out on Jim Martin. You know, it's more, a more of a lightning rod. Uh, and so priests can do that more easily, right? And, and bishops and cardinals. And, but I think most of it is this, look, look, there's a lot of homophobia in the church. We just need to say that. There just, there is. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of people who support gay people. Um, I think that number is growing, but there's still pockets of homophobia. We just have to be aware of that. At the end of our first segment, Father Martin spoke of the homophobia still found in the Catholic Church. He has spoken out against the unjust firings of LGBTQ people from Catholic institutions, the dehumanizing way many church leaders talk about us, particularly the transgender members of our community, and against legislation criminalizing LGBTQ people in countries such as Ghana and Poland that are supported by their local Catholic leaders. 
but it was his concerns about ways in which LGBTQ youths are harmed by religious-based homophobia and transphobia that I wanted to focus on in our second segment. An important study by the Family Acceptance Project of the University of San Francisco found that parents who are strongly religious were the most likely to reject their LGBTQ children, and that experiencing such rejection results in high rates of depression, substance abuse, and suicide. At the Ali Furnay Center, we are witness to a particularly horrific consequence of family rejection, that of thousands of teens driven into homelessness. Such a vast percentage of the young people who come to us for help were driven from their homes because of their parents' religious beliefs that I have come to recognize the crisis of LGBTQ youth homelessness as fundamentally a crisis of religion. Now, you know, obviously the Ali Frenet Center is about protecting LGBTQ youth who've been rejected by their families. Um, overwhelmingly, the young people who come to us tell us that their families you know, rejected them because of their religious beliefs. Yes. Can I ask you something before you go on? Because I'm always fascinated by this and the work you do. What percentage would you say? I know you can't give me a like, what percentage would you say, say that, that it's for religious reasons? Because I get asked that a lot. 90. Wow. Gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in our early years, when we didn't ask the question as frequently, we thought it was about 40 to 50. Hmm. Uh, but I, I, I had it built into our intake so that, you know, when, when young people first come to us, we're asking them about their experiences in their home. And that's one of the questions we ask. Were you subjected to violence or, or hostility because of your LGBTQ identity? And what was the reason behind it? And about 90% of the youth tell us that they were subjected to hostility or rejection in their homes because of, of their parents' religious beliefs. Thank you for sharing that. I'm, it's, it's helpful for me to know because I use that statistic a lot. And, and you know, just to, to give a broader context, we see about 1,500 young people a year. Mm. Uh, and in the 18 year, 19 years we've been open, about uh, over 10,000 young people have come to us. Thank so, you. Uh, you know, it's thousands and thousands and thousands of young people telling us that they've been thrown out of their homes because of their parents' religious beliefs. I also want to say while, I'm, while we're on the topic, thank you for your work. You're welcome. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's interesting for me. Um, for, for about 30 years after Stonewall, the, the issue of LGBTQ youth homelessness was fairly invisible in the larger LGBTQ community. It just was not a big focus of attention. And I, I feel like one of the great paradoxes of my life is that I'm responding to something that is so much caused by the hurtfulness of religion or ways in which religion can be used hurtfully. And yet I saw those kids and I understood those needs because of my background in the Catholic worker movement. You know, I had been trained that that was my school. The Catholic worker was my school. And, you know, it trained me to see the presence of God in people who are suffering and who are homeless and who are hungry. So when I started working with homeless LGBTQ youth and saw that they were out in the streets, I understood they needed housing. And, and so it, it, that's a, a real paradox for me that in some ways, like it was my Catholic belief system that prompted me to do what I did. Um, well, there's an old, I think it's a Portuguese saying that says that, uh, God writes straight with crooked lines. 
And so in other words, you know, God's using all that. This is, I know this is not a spiritual direction session, but God's using all that, you know, God's using your background to, to help people, which is really beautiful. So I'd say it's providential. Well, I, I have all kinds of thoughts about that, but I want to ask you about what, what prompted me to reach out to you to, to do this interview was when you wrote an article about a month ago in America Magazine about ways in which uh, homophobia was hurting LGBT young people. Mm-hmm. I, I just felt like it's, it connected so closely to the work that we do. Mm. And, and in fact, you even talked about our work in your article, so, which I was very proud of. Um, I was happy to. So I want to talk to you about a, an earlier interview I did with Jane Clemente, Tyler Clemente's mother. I'm sure our listeners know who, who Tyler Clemente is and, and who Jane Clemente is, but he was uh, a Rutgers University student who jumped off the George Washington Bridge back in 2010 after being bullied in, in his school for being queer. And afterwards, Jane was going through his room and, and going through his belongings and found a copybook that he had from Sunday school when he was younger, like 13 or 14 years old. And in it, he had to write out, like it was like homosexuality is blank and he had to fill in a sin. And she was so upset when she saw that and she felt like that had kind of laid the groundwork for the shame that was Mm -hmm. so hard for him to resolve when he was bullied later. Mm -hmm. And she told me that her biggest regret in life was that she had sent her child to a church community that would teach him that. Mm. Um, So so in light of that, um, I wonder what, you know, how you as a pastor would, would um, respond to parents, um, Mm-hmm. I, I think that a lot of parents would be very concerned or should be very concerned about exposing their children to those kinds of messages. And how would you think they should address those concerns? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to challenge church teaching on the podcast, but I often say that the church has to, the first thing I, 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 I do is I listen to them, Right. And usually, I mean, if you, the way you're asking the question, um, usually parents who are concerned about that are, are providing a loving atmosphere for their kids. That's the most important thing, right? Mm-hmm. But I say to them, look, here's how you have to understand church teaching. Church teaching is not simply those few lines in the catechism, right? People say, oh, this is church teaching. Church teaching is Jesus. Church teaching is Jesus, Jesus's message of love, mercy, compassion, Church teaching is Jesus reaching out to those on the margin, specifically people who are seen as other, who are seen as different. Then there are those lines in the catechism, and then there's your conscience. And so it's the same kind of thing that I say to people who may come to me and say, I disagree with church teaching on birth control, right? I say, and you know, no one, no one's kicking them out of the church and we're, we're listening to them, right? And, and people make decisions based on their consciences right? Um, a lot of people don't agree with the church's teaching on all sorts of things, right? And somehow, though, the LGBT issue gets so foregrounded and so highlighted that this happens, that, that these things happen, right? That, 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 that a boy would think that, you know, God rejects him or the church rejects him. It's just, it's appalling. 
And so I, I, I ask people to see these things in context and to use their consciences, right? I, I think that, I mean, I put this in my book, um, Building a Bridge. Uh, and I, I, I hadn't heard that. I know Jane Clemente and I worked with the Tyler Clemente Foundation. I hadn't heard that story. That's really devastating to hear. A woman came up to me to talk at Villanova University and said, uh, do people in the Vatican understand what that language can do to a 14-year-old boy? It could destroy him. And I say in my book, um, you know, we need to listen to those voices. And, you know, anything that would tempt someone to think that they're not loved by God, that they're not valued, that they're not whole, right, is, is not coming from God. And so... So I, but, but I guess what I'm saying is usually the people that come to me that ask that are already handling it. Well, you know what I mean? It's the people who are unthinking yeah. and who use it as a kind of battering ram against people. Um, but I think, you know, beyond just the catechism, there's just this mistaken understanding of the Bible in general and, you know, using passages from Leviticus and I, I you know, this is a, I, I hate to say this, but it's, a, that's like a very easy thing to respond to because people say, well, what about Leviticus? You know, homosexuality is an abomination. And I say, well, what about Leviticus that says that you should stone people who blaspheme? You believe in that? Well, oh, I don't believe in that. Well, why not? It's in the Bible. So suddenly we become fundamentalists and literalists. Um, suddenly we become people who focus just on one line of the catechism to the exclusion of, you know, everything else that the church teaches. And it's, it's wrong. This is why I think Pope Francis is approach of accompaniment and listening and is so important. I actually think you, you touched on something that that's a real naughty issue for me. Um, about 15 years ago, uh, New York City gave the Alley Freenay Center some money to do an ad campaign um, to try to reach out to parents who are struggling to accept their LGBTQ children and to provide them with counseling. We put these beautiful ads in the subways. Uh, we be these pictures of, of a mother hugging her infant daughter or a father hugging his infant son. And it said, would you stop loving him if he was gay? And, um, you know, then we you know, had some statistics and we talked about how it can be challenging when your child comes out. We're here for you. All the parents that came to us were the parents that wanted to protect their children and wanted to accept their children. And they were not the parents that were going to throw their children out. When I think about like the safety of, of, of queer kids in, in, in church communities that are not accepting, that's like the thorny issue for me. It's like, how do you protect them? You know, it's like, you know, if, if you've got protective parents, they're going to bring their kids to, you know, a safe, affirming community, right? They're going to care mm -hmm. enough to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but, but the young people that are being exposed to messages of, of, of um, you know, shame and, 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 and kind of moral condemnation, th there's a real danger there. And, there's a huge and, danger there. I mean, your, your statistic is probably the statistic that I quote the most. I mean, now I know the exact one about, I usually say the majority, you know, of, of kids who are homeless. And then there's, we, we're, we haven't even talked about suicide yet. I mean, that's such the wonderful work that the Tyler Clemente Foundation does. Um, yeah. So how do you change that? And what do kids do? I have to say one of my images in ministry is I am doing this along with many other people. I don't want to say it's just Jim Martin. It's, you know, all sorts of Catholic organizations do this work. New Ways Ministry, Dignity, Fortunate Families, Fortunate and Faithful Families, Global Network of Rainbow Catholics. There's a lot out there for your listeners. 
But one of the yeah, many Catholic colleges also. Yeah, have. Oh, absolutely. Thank yeah. you for saying that. Tons of them. Catholic, I mean, I I give talks every day. I just I just I was planning a talk um, for Marist College um, and their board. And I, I mean, I give talks at Catholic high schools. You know, ironically, the covid crisis has allowed me to do all this by, via Zoom. And I've been I've probably given like 150 talks. So lots and lots of Catholic organizations and parishes, I should say, have outreach groups and all that. But to your point, my in a sense, quote unquote, target audience is the is the adolescent teen in their, you know, in their room, you know, locked in their room, wondering how they're going to, you know, does God love them? And is there a place for them in the church? And do they want to go to church at all? And so I think there's a couple answers to that question. One is the one I just said, that there are places that you can go to. For example, if you live in New York, if you're lucky enough to live in a big city like, like this with, with open, there are probably 30 parishes that I could name right off the bat where you would feel very, very welcome, okay? And colleges and universities. Um, second thing is, I think there's a lot of stuff online that helps kids, right? I mean, we all know that. I'm starting up a, a website, God willing. I'm in a couple months for LGBT Catholics. That's just going to be a, a resource group. And I'd love to have you as part of it, you know, certainly links to, to your center. But the third thing I think is really changing the church. And, and helping them understand uh, the, 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 the danger of that kind of language. And more importantly, the, the value of affirming language and affirming actions. So I think that's why I'm working so hard within the church. And that is happening. Uh, that is definitely happening. And I think uh, it's, it's just, it's slow. It's slow. And it's some, I, I hear from all the time from LGBT Catholics, you know, not enough, not enough, not enough. But it is, it's moving in the right direction. I mean, look at Pope Francis just a few, like a week ago, was speaking to Slovakian Jesuits, okay? Talking to them about reaching out pastorally to homosexual couples. Now, most people didn't even see that. That's a big step forward. I mean, Pope Benedict said that homosexual couples, i.e. same-sex marriage, was a threat to the future of humanity. Now you, say, now you have Pope Francis saying we need to work with these uh, couples pastorally. That's like in five, 10 years. So it is moving. And I think the, the, you know, again, the Pope is doing it step by step. And, uh, you know, again, it's not moving as quickly in sub-Saharan Africa, and that's part of the church too. So he has to be kind of slow, but it's, it's happening. It's happening. And you're right. No kid should feel that way. No kid should feel shamed about who he, she, or they are. And they should all know that God loves them and that there's a place in the church. Well, I have to say, I think in terms of where one can effectively make a change, like a real change, like we often end up kind of preaching to the choir in our bubbles, Yeah, sometimes right? we do. Yeah. So I feel like folks that can get into religious communities and, and, and help them to understand how badly so many young people are being hurt by homophobia and transphobia are doing an amazing work. And I, I, I so I really salute you because I, I feel like you're going to where the healing needs to happen the most. And I, I, I I'm just, I, I pretty much pray in gratitude for what you're doing every day. Oh, thanks. Um, uh, one last thing I want to, let me, let me say something. Let me, let me give you kind of a hopeful thing. Cause I actually thought there was going to be a, but coming up saying, but you know, it's there, there's all this pain. I do want to say something that's hopeful that I think readers or listeners, um, uh, I'm going to say I'd like them to understand, which is this. 
there are two trends in the church right now, in the Catholic church. One trend I can say in two words, which is Pope Francis. Okay. Pope Francis is opening things up. He is appointing uh, sometimes in ways that people don't see cardinals and bishops who are much more LGBTQ friendly. He just is. Okay. And there's some things that are happening that would not have happened if he were not Pope. Now that trend could change tomorrow. God forbid he'll, uh, he dies tomorrow, but he, you know, hopefully he's around for another 10 years, but that could change tomorrow. There's a second trend that won't change. And this is what I wanted to say more and more, as you know, young people and adolescents and adults are coming out all over the world. That's happening. As a result, more and more families are being affected. As that, and as a result of that, more and more parishes and schools and retreat centers and dioceses are being affected. And that is what's really changing things. That is what's changing things. And people are much more open. I just had a call this morning from a priest who describes himself as quite conservative. He, he said that I'm quite conservative. Uh, I had this a woman who wants to join the parish. Uh, who is married to another woman, and do you have any advice for me? Now, that would not have happened 20 years ago. First of all, she probably wouldn't have come out. She wouldn't be married, uh, and he might not have been as open. And so that's just happening. And the other thing, funny enough, this is a small thing, and I, I hate to go on so long, but funny enough, it's a very small thing. Because more and more young people are out, that means more and more priests, sisters, and bishops have nieces and nephews who are out. And no one thinks about that. That's a big factor. They, they just, they're, they're, my beloved nephew is, is gay. That just, that changes someone. Their beloved nephew probably wouldn't have been out 20 or 30 years ago, right? And if they were out, they wouldn't have been out to their priest or bishop or sister, uncle or aunt. That's changing things. It, it just does. And so that, that, that second trend, I think, is really a hopeful one. And that's not going to change. One thing that I've been struck by is that a lot of young people are leaving the church, mm -hmm. uh, not just the Catholic church, many churches. Mm -hmm. And there's a perception that, that somehow, you know, being Christian, being religious makes people mean. Yeah. Uh, makes people <laughs> close hearted and yeah. close minded. Mm -hmm. And I think that for many folks uh, kind of, church teachings around the sinfulness of homosexuality or it is where that meanness crystallizes, uh, that perception of meanness, uh, cruelty, uh, it crystallizes. And, and I think that just from an evangelical perspective, like, you know, if, in terms of the efficacy, the effectiveness of preaching the message of, of a God of love, like the homophobia is became, becoming a real barrier. And, and I, I, I'm hoping that, that over time, it, that just gets recognized, that, that if you want to be an effective evangelist of the gospel, that, that homophobia is going to turn people off and drive them away. Well, but the people that preach that thinks they're, they're being prophetic and they're preaching the word of God and they, I must preach this, you know, this word of how terrible and sinful these people are, just like I would preach against, you know, fill in the blank of whatever your favorite sin is. I think, uh, but you're right. Uh, and I think what, again, what's changing things is not a theological uh, conversion, not a uh, sort of academic conversion, but an experiential conversion, which is they meet LGBT people. And it just, it changes them. Look, there's a reason why Jesus taught in stories and in parables, arguments and debates, they generally don't sway people. Meeting people, 
you know, if you say, oh, I, I, I don't want to work with homeless people, they're fill in the blank. And then you work in a homeless shelter and you see what they're like. You don't want to work with refugees or, and you, you meet them, you say, oh my gosh, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea that LGBTQ kids went, went through this. And so it's transformative for people if they're open to it. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, they are, they are losing people. I think Carl, the other difference is this, I would say 25, 30 years ago, what I would run into is I am LGBT and I'm struggling to find my place in the church. You know, will you help me now? It's just as likely as I'm LGBT and I'm out of here. Like, I don't need it. You know, so there's, there's not as much of a desire, but I think it's incumbent on the church to simply, you know, be like Jesus which is to reach out, especially to people on the margins. I could tell you all sorts of gospel stories about that, but that's what he does over and over and over again. And this is what we need to do because if we're not trying to be like Jesus, what's the point? I want to close by telling a story about one of the young people that, that came to us. Um, grew up in a Catholic family. His father had died. So he was with his mother. His mother was like his best friend. Like they were super, super close. Uh, but he didn't feel able to confide in her that, that he was uh, gay. And um, he had a box that he hid under his bed where he put all his gay stuff, like, you know, his, his, his magazines and books. And, 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 mm. and one day his mother was cleaning the, the room out and, and, and found the box and, um, and threw him out that, that day. Wow. Wow. And, when was that? Uh, when was this? This is recently. This was about, uh, 10 years ago. Wow. Okay. Um, Lord, I mean, but we have stories like that every day. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, every day things like that are happening. Mm -hmm. um, and when he came to us, he was so sad. He was so depressed. He was so hurt. Um, but we sort of became a new family for him. And just being in a space where he could be his gay self and, and vogue around the hallway and, and we just saw him over time blossoming and, and, you know, I, I, I just, you know, I, I believe in a God of love, you know, I believe that, that Jesus preached a God of love. I believe that our work is a work of love. It is. You know, it's housing people who, who are been in the streets, feeding people who've been hungry, clothing people who've been cold. I, I just think that if the, church can get closer to LGBTQ people, can get closer to LGBTQ young people, and can think about how to center love in how we respond, it would just be so healing um, I for everybody. Agree. I agree 100%. I know it's an interfaith uh, center and, and you know people of no faith, but I think what you're doing is deeply Christian. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, the person who is lying by the side of the road. Look, a priest passes that person by in the parable, priest and a Levite. So a priest and, and, and a member of a priestly caste. And it's the Samaritan, the person who is, you know, seen as kind of on the outs, who helps the beaten person. And this is what you're doing. This is, this is you are enacting the parable of the good Samaritan. And I think if Jesus were around today, he would make a beeline to your door and be with those kids, be with those young people. You know, it's interesting what you talked about when you talked about that poignant story about that young man. Uh, you know, he was able to blossom, as you know, because he didn't have to put that box. He didn't have to hide that box away anymore. He could open it up and, and, and look at it and be himself. You're doing something that's very Christian. And I, and I think that churches can learn from 
that approach, that welcoming approach. I, I do feel that you are playing a pivotal role in helping the church in the United States and globally uh, move in, 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 in a more loving direction. And I, and I thank you for it. Well, I want to thank you for the work that you do on the ground. And I think uh, I always say to people, they say, well, what can I do? And I say, look, if you can welcome and make one kid feel loved and welcomed, then that's enough. And think of how many people you've helped. So I just want to say thank you um, as a Catholic and as a Catholic priest. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your ministry. Well, you're welcome. And again, thank you. Thank you so much. Father James Martin frequently posts about LGBTQ issues on Twitter and Facebook and regularly addresses them in America Magazine. To learn more about the Ali Fernay Center's work providing housing and support to homeless LGBTQ youths, please visit alifournaycenter.org. I thank Father James Martin for giving us his time. And as well, I thank Tyler Nisloni for his production assistance and David Raleigh and Ramai Ramirez for composing and recording our soundtrack music.